Chapter Three, Part Three of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Three, Practical Politics, Part Three. I wish to dwell on the soundness of our outlook on life, even though as yet it was not broad enough. We were no respecters of persons. Where our vision was developed to a degree that enabled us to see crookedness, we opposed it, whether in great or small. As a matter of fact, we found that it needed much more courage to stand up openly against labor men when they were wrong than against capitalists when they were wrong. The sins against labor are usually committed, and the improper services to capitalists are usually rendered, behind closed doors. Very often the man with the moral courage to speak in the open against labor when it is wrong is the only man anxious to do effective work for labor when labor is right. The only kinds of courage and honesty which are permanently useful to good institutions anywhere are those shown by men who decide all cases with impartial justice on grounds of conduct and not on grounds of class. We found that in the long run the men who in public blatantly insisted that labor was never wrong were the very men who in private could not be trusted to stand for labor when it was right. We grew heartily to distrust the reformer who never denounced wickedness unless it was embodied in a rich man. Human nature does not change, and that type of reformer is as noxious now as he ever was. The loud mouthed upholder of popular rights who attacks wickedness only when it is allied with wealth, and who never publicly assails any misdeed, no matter how flagrant, if committed nominally in the interest of labor, has either a warped mind or a tainted soul, and should be trusted by no honest man. It was largely the indignant and contemptuous dislike aroused in our minds by the demagogues of this class, which then prevented those of us whose instincts at bottom were sound, from going as far as we ought to have gone along the lines of governmental control of corporations, and governmental interference on behalf of labor. I did, however, have one exceedingly useful experience. A bill was introduced by the Cigar Makers' Union to prohibit the manufacture of cigars in tenement houses. I was appointed one of a committee of three to investigate conditions in the tenement houses and see if legislation should be had. Of my two colleagues on the committee, one took no interest in the measure and privately said he did not think it was right, but that he had to vote for it because the labor unions were strong in his district and he was pledged to support the bill. The other, a sporting Tammany man who afterwards abandoned politics for the race track, was a very good fellow. He told me frankly that he had to be against the bill because certain interests which were all powerful and with which he had dealings required him to be against it, but that I was a free agent and that if I would look into the matter he believed I would favor the legislation. As a matter of fact, I had supposed I would be against the legislation, and I rather think that I was put on the committee with that idea, for the respectable people I knew were against it. It was contrary to the principles of political economy of the laissez-faire kind, and the businessmen who spoke to me about it shook their heads, and said that it was designed to prevent a man doing as he wished, and as he had a right to do with what was his own. However, my first visits to the tenement-house districts in question made me feel that, whatever the theories might be, as a matter of practical common sense I could not conscientiously vote for the continuance of the conditions which I saw. These conditions rendered it impossible for the families of the tenement-house workers to live, so that the children might grow up fitted for the exacting duties of American citizenship. I visited the tenement-houses once with my colleagues of the committee, once with some of the labor union representatives, and once or twice by myself. 
In a few of the tenement houses there were suites of rooms ample in number, where the work on the tobacco was done in rooms not occupied for cooking or sleeping or living. In the overwhelming majority of cases, however, there were one, two, or three-room apartments, and the work of manufacturing the tobacco by men, women, and children went on day and night in the eating, living, and sleeping rooms, sometimes in one room. I have always remembered one room in which two families were living. On my inquiry as to who the third adult male was, I was told that he was a boarder with one of the families. There were several children, three men, and two women in this room. The tobacco was stowed about everywhere, alongside the foul bedding, and in a corner where there were scraps of food. The men, women, and children in this room worked by day and far on into the evening, and they slept and ate there. They were bohemians, unable to speak English, except that one of the children knew enough to act as interpreter. Instead of opposing the bill, I ardently championed it. It was a poorly drawn measure, and the governor, Grover Cleveland, was at first doubtful about signing it. The cigar-makers' union then asked me to appear before the governor and argue for it. I accordingly did so, acting as spokesman for the battered, undersized foreigners who represented the union and the workers. The governor signed the bill. Afterwards this tenement-house cigar legislation was declared invalid by the Court of Appeals in the Jacobs decision. Jacobs was one of the rare tenement-house manufacturers of cigars who occupied quite a suite of rooms, so that in his case the living conditions were altogether exceptional. What the reason was which influenced those bringing the suit to select the exceptional instead of the average worker I do not know. Of course such action was precisely the action which those most interested in having the law broken down were anxious to see taken. The Court of Appeals declared the law unconstitutional, and in their decision the judges reprobated the law as an assault upon the hallowed influences of home. It was this case which first waked me to a dim and partial understanding of the fact that the courts were not necessarily the best judges of what should be done to better social and industrial conditions. The judges who rendered this decision were well-meaning men. They knew nothing, whatever, of tenement-house conditions. They knew nothing, whatever, of the needs, or of the life and labor, of three-fourths of their fellow-citizens in great cities. They knew legalism, but not life. Their choice of the words hallowed and home, as applicable to the revolting conditions attending the manufacture of cigars in tenement-houses, showed that they had no idea what it was that they were deciding. Imagine the hallowed associations of a home consisting of one room where two families, one of them with a boarder, live, eat, and work. This decision completely blocked tenement-house reform legislation in New York for a score of years, and hampers it to this day. It was one of the most serious setbacks which the cause of industrial and social progress and reform ever received. I had been brought up to hold the courts in a special reverence. The people with whom I was most intimate were apt to praise the courts for just such decisions as this, and to speak of them as bulwarks against disorder and barriers against demagogic legislation. These were the same people with whom the judges who rendered these decisions were apt to foregather at social clubs, or dinners, or in private life. Very naturally, they all tended to look at things from the same standpoint. Of course it took more than one experience, such as this tenement cigar case, to shake me out of the attitude in which I was brought up. But various decisions, not only of the New York court, but of certain other state courts, and even of the United States Supreme Court, during the quarter of a century following the passage of this tenement-house legislation, did at last thoroughly waken me to the actual fact. I grew to realize that all that Abraham Lincoln had said about the Dred Scott decision could be said with equal truth and justice 
about the numerous decisions which in our own day were erected as bars across the path of social reform, and which brought to naught so much of the effort to secure justice and fair dealing for working men and working women, and for plain citizens generally. Some of the wickedness and inefficiency in public life was then displayed in simpler fashion than would probably now be the case. Once or twice I was a member of committees which looked into gross and widely ramifying governmental abuses. On the whole, the most important part I played was in the third legislature in which I served, when I acted as chairman of a committee which investigated various phases of New York City official life. The most important of the reform measures our committee recommended was the bill taking away from the aldermen their power of confirming over the mayor's appointments. We found that it was possible to get citizens interested in the character and capacity of the head of the city, so that they would exercise some intelligent interest in his conduct and qualifications. But we found that as a matter of fact it was impossible to get them interested in the aldermen and other subordinate officers. In actual practice the aldermen were merely the creatures of the local ward bosses or of the big municipal bosses, and where they controlled the appointments the citizens at large had no chance whatever to make their will felt. Accordingly, we fought for the principle, which I believe to be of universal application, that what is needed in our popular government is to give plenty of power to a few officials, and to make these few officials genuinely and readily responsible to the people for the exercise of that power. Taking away the confirming power of the Board of Aldermen did not give the citizens of New York good government. We knew that if they chose to elect the wrong kind of mayor they would have bad government, no matter what the form of the law was but we did secure to them the chance to get good government if they desired, and this was impossible as long as the old system remained. The change was fought in the way in which all similar changes always are fought. The corrupt and interested politicians were against it, and the battle cries they used, which rallied to them most of the unthinking conservatives, were that we were changing the old constitutional system, that we were defacing the monuments of the wisdom of the founders of the government, that we were destroying that distinction between legislative and executive power which was the bulwark of our liberties, and that we were violent and unscrupulous radicals with no reverence for the past. Of course the investigations, disclosures, and proceedings of the investigating committee of which I was chairman brought me into bitter personal conflict with very powerful financiers, very powerful politicians, and with certain newspapers which these financiers and politicians controlled. A number of able and unscrupulous men were fighting, some for their financial lives, and others to keep out of unpleasantly close neighborhood to state's prison. This meant there were blows to be taken as well as given. In such political struggles, those who went in for the kind of things that I did speedily excited animosities among strong and cunning men, who would stop at little to gratify their animosity. Any man engaged in this particular type of militant and practical reform movement was soon made to feel that he had better not undertake to push matters home, unless his character was unassailable. On one of the investigating committees on which I served there was a countryman, a very able man, who, when he reached New York City, felt as certain Americans do when they go to Paris, that the moral restraints of his native place no longer applied. With all his ability, he was not shrewd enough to realize that the police department was having him, as well as the rest of us, carefully shadowed. He was caught red-handed by a plain-clothesman doing what he had no business to do, and from that time on he dared not act, save as those who held his secret permitted him to act. Thenceforth those officials who stood behind the police department had one man on the committee on whom they could count. 
I never saw terror more ghastly on a strong man's face than on the face of this man, on one or two occasions, when he feared that events in the committee might take such a course as to force him into a position where his colleagues would expose him, even if the city officials did not. However, he escaped, for we were never able to get the kind of proof which would warrant our asking for the action in which this man could not have joined. Traps were set for more than one of us, and if we had walked into these traps our public careers would have ended, at least so far as following them under the condition which alone make it worth while to be in public life at all. A man can of course hold public office, and many a man does hold public office, and lead a public career of a sort, even if there are other men who possess secrets about him which he cannot afford to have divulged. But no man can lead a public career really worth leading, no man can act with rugged independence in serious crises, nor strike at great abuses, nor afford to make powerful and unscrupulous foes, if he is himself vulnerable in his private character. Nor will clean conduct by itself enable a man to render good service. I have always been fond of Josh Billings's remark that it is much easier to be a harmless dove than a wise serpent. There are plenty of decent legislators, and plenty of able legislators, but the blamelessness and the fighting edge are not always combined. Both qualities are necessary for the man who is to wage active battle against the powers that prey. He must be clean of life, so that he can laugh when his public or his private record is searched, and yet being clean of life will not avail him if he is either foolish or timid. He must walk warily and fearlessly, and while he should never brawl if he can avoid it, he must be ready to hit hard if the need arises. Let him remember, by the way, that the unforgivable crime is soft hitting. Do not hit at all if it can be avoided, but never hit softly. Like most young men in politics, I went through various oscillations of feeling before I found myself. At one period I became so impressed with the virtue of complete independence that I proceeded to act on each case purely as I personally viewed it, without paying any heed to the principles and prejudices of others. The result was that I speedily and deservedly lost all power of accomplishing anything at all, and I thereby learned the invaluable lesson that in the practical activities of life no man can render the highest service unless he can act in combination with his fellows, which means a certain amount of give and take between him and them. Again, I at one period began to believe that I had a future before me, and that it behooved me to be very far-sighted and scan each action carefully with a view to its possible effect on the future. This speedily made me useless to the public and an object of aversion to myself, and then I made up my mind that I would try not to think of the future at all, but would proceed on the assumption that each office I held would be the last I ever should hold, and that I would confine myself to trying to do my work as well as possible while I held that office. I found that for me personally this was the only way in which I could either enjoy myself or render good service to the country, and I never afterwards deviated from this plan. As regards political advancement, the bosses could, of course, do a good deal. At that time the warring, stalwart, and half-breed factions of the Republican Party were supporting, respectively, President Arthur and Senator Miller. Neither side cared for me. The first year in the legislature I rose to a position of leadership, so that in the second year, when the Republicans were in a minority, I received the minority nomination for Speaker, although I was still the youngest man in the House, being twenty-four years old. The third year the Republicans carried the legislature, and the bosses at once took a hand in the speakership contest. I made a stout fight for the nomination, but the bosses of the two factions, the stalwarts and the half-breeds, combined, and I was beaten. I was much chagrined for the moment. 
but the fact that I had fought hard and efficiently, even though defeated, and that I had made the fight single-handed, with no machine back of me, assured my standing as a floor leader. My defeat in the end materially strengthened my position, and enabled me to accomplish far more than I could have accomplished as speaker. As so often I found that the titular position was of no consequence, what counted was the combination of the opportunity with the ability to accomplish results. The achievement was the all-important thing. The position, whether titularly high or low, was of consequence only in so far as it widened the chance for achievement. After the session closed, four of us, who looked at politics from the same standpoint, were known as independent or anti-machine Republicans, were sent by the State Convention as delegates at large to the Republican National Convention of 1884, where I advocated, as vigorously as I knew how, the nomination of Senator George F. Edmonds. Mr. Edmonds was defeated and Mr. Blaine nominated. Mr. Blaine was clearly the choice of the rank and file of the party. His nomination was won in fair and above-board fashion, because the rank and file of the party stood back of him, and I supported him to the best of my ability in the ensuing campaign. The speakership contest enlightened me as regards more things than the attitude of the bosses. I had already had some exasperating experiences with the silk-stocking reformer type, as Abraham Lincoln called it, the gentlemen who were very nice, very refined, who shook their heads over political corruption and discussed it in drawing-rooms and parlours, but who were wholly unable to grapple with real men in real life. They were apt vociferously to demand reform as if it were some concrete substance, like cake, which could be handed out at will, in tangible masses, if only the demand were urgent enough. These parlour reformers made up for inefficiency in action by zeal in criticising, and they delighted in criticising the men who really were doing the things which they said ought to be done, but which they lacked the sinewy power to do. They often upheld ideals which were not merely impossible, but highly undesirable, and thereby played into the hands of the very politicians to whom they professed to be the most hostile. Moreover, if they believed that their own interests, individually or as a class, were jeoparded, they were apt to show no higher standards than did the men they usually denounced. One of their shibboleths was that the office should seek the man, and not the man the office. This is entirely true of certain offices at certain times. It is entirely untrue when the circumstances are different. It would have been unnecessary and undesirable for Washington to have sought the presidency. But if Abraham Lincoln had not sought the presidency, he never would have been nominated. The objection in such a case as this lies not to the seeking the office, but to seeking it in any but an honorable and proper manner. The effect of the shibboleth in question is usually merely to put a premium on hypocrisy, and therefore to favor the creature who is willing to rise by hypocrisy. When I ran for speaker, the whole body of machine politicians was against me, and my only chance lay in arousing the people in the different districts. To do this I had to visit the districts, put the case fairly before men whom I saw, and make them understand that I was really making a fight, and would stay in the fight to the end. Yet there were reformers who shook their heads and deplored my activity in the canvass. Of course, the one thing which corrupt machine politicians most desire is to have decent men frown on the activity, that is, on the efficiency of the honest man who genuinely wishes to reform politics. If inefficiency is left solely to bad men, and if virtue is confined solely to inefficient men, the result cannot be happy. When I entered politics there were, as there always had been, and as there always will be, any number of bad men in politics who were thoroughly efficient, 
and any number of good men who would have liked to have done lofty things in politics, but who were thoroughly inefficient. If I wished to accomplish anything for the country, my business was to combine decency and efficiency, to be a thoroughly practical man of high ideals, who did his best to reduce those ideals to actual practice. This was my ideal, and to the best of my ability I strove to live up to it. To a young man, life in the New York legislature was always interesting and often entertaining. There was always a struggle of some kind on hand. Sometimes it was on a naked question of right and wrong. Sometimes it was on a question of real, constructive statesmanship. Moreover, there were all kinds of humorous incidents, the humor being usually of the unconscious kind. In one session of the legislature the New York City Democratic representatives were split into two camps, and there were two rivals for leadership. One of these was a thoroughly good-hearted, happy-go-lucky person who was afterwards for several years in Congress. He had been a local magistrate and was called judge. Generally he and I were friendly, but occasionally I did something that irritated him. He was always willing to vote for any other member's bill himself, and he regarded it as narrow-minded for anyone to oppose one of his bills, especially if the opposition was upon the ground that it was unconstitutional, for his views of the Constitution were so excessively liberal as to make even me feel as if I belonged to the straightest sect of strict constructionalists. On one occasion he had a bill to appropriate money, with obvious impropriety, for the relief of some miscreant whom he styled one of the honest yeomanry of the State. When I explained to him that it was clearly unconstitutional, he answered, "'My friend, the Constitution don't touch little things like that,' and then he added, with an ingratiating smile, Anyhow, I'd never allow the Constitution to come between friends. At the time I was looking over the proofs of Mr. Bryce's American Commonwealth, and I told him the incident. He put it into the first edition of the Commonwealth. Whether it is in the last edition or not, I cannot say. On another occasion the same gentleman came to an issue with me in a debate, and wound up his speech by explaining that I occupied what lawyers would call a quasi-position on the bill. His rival was a man of a totally different type, a man of great natural dignity, also born in Ireland. He had served with gallantry in the Civil War. After the close of the war he organized an expedition to conquer Canada. The expedition, however, got so drunk before reaching Albany that it was there incarcerated in jail, whereupon its leader abandoned it and went into New York politics instead. He was a man of influence, and later occupied in the police department the same position as commissioner which I myself at one time occupied. He felt that his rival had gained too much glory at my expense, and walking over with ceremonious solemnity to where the said rival was sitting close beside me, he said to him, "'I would like you to know, Mr. Cameron,' Cameron, of course, was not the real name, "'that Mr. Roosevelt knows more law in a week than you do in a month, and more than that, Michael Cameron, what do you mean by quoting Latin on the floor of this house when you don't know the Alpha and Omega of the language?' This was in the legislature, during the deadlock above mentioned, there was in the legislature, during the deadlock above mentioned, a man whom I will call Brogan. He looked more like a serious elderly frog. I never heard him speak more than once. It was before the legislature was organized, or had adopted any rules, and each day the only business was for the clerk to call the roll. One day Brogan suddenly rose, and the following dialogue occurred. Brogan. Mr. Clerk! The clerk. The gentleman from New York. Brogan. I rise to a point of order under the rules. The Clerk. There are no rules. Brogan. Then I object to them. The Clerk. There are no rules to object to. Brogan. Oh! Nonplussed, but immediately recovering himself. Then I move that they be amended until there are. 
The deadlock was tedious, and we hailed with joy such enlivening incidents as the above. During my three years' service in the legislature I worked on a very simple philosophy of government. It was that personal character and initiative are the prime requisites in political and social life. It was not only a good but an absolutely indispensable theory as far as it went, but it was defective in that it did not sufficiently allow for the need of collective action. I shall never forget the men with whom I worked, hand in hand, in these legislative struggles, not only my fellow legislators, but some of the newspaper reporters, such as Spiney and Cunningham, and then in addition the men in the various districts who helped us. We had made up our minds that we must not fight fire with fire, that on the contrary, the way to win out was to equal our foes in practical efficiency, and yet to stand at the opposite plane from them in applied morality. It was not always easy to keep the just middle, especially when it happened that on one side there were corrupt and unscrupulous demagogues, and on the other side corrupt and unscrupulous reactionaries. Our effort was to hold the scales even between both. We tried to stand with the cause of righteousness, even though its advocates were anything but righteous. We endeavored to cut out the abuses of property, even though good men of property were misled into upholding those abuses. We refused to be frightened into sanctioning improper assaults upon property, although we knew that the champions of property themselves did things that were wicked and corrupt. We were as yet by no means as thoroughly awake as we ought to have been to the need of controlling big business, and to the damage done by the combination of politics with big business. In this matter I was not behind the rest of my friends. Indeed, I was ahead of them, for no serious leader in political life then appreciated the prime need of grappling with these questions. One partial reason, not an excuse or a justification, but a partial reason, for my slowness in grasping the importance of action in these matters, was the corrupt and unattractive nature of so many of the men who championed popular reforms, their insincerity, and the folly of so many of the actions which they advocated. Even at that date I had neither sympathy with nor admiration for the man who was merely a money-king, and I did not regard the money-touch, when divorced from other qualities, as entitling a man to either respect or consideration. As recited above, we did on more than one occasion fight battles, in which we neither took nor gave quarter against the most prominent and powerful financiers and financial interests of the day. But most of the fights in which we were engaged were for pure honesty and decency, and they were more apt to be against that form of corruption which found its expression in demagogy than against that form of corruption which defended or advocated privilege. Fundamentally, our fight was part of the eternal war against the powers that prey, and we cared not a whit in what rank of life these powers were found. To play the demagogue for purposes of self-interest is a cardinal sin against the people in a democracy, exactly as to play the courtier for such purposes is a cardinal sin against the people under other forms of government. A man who stays long in our American political life, if he has in his soul the generous desire to do effective service for great causes, inevitably grows to regard himself merely as one of many instruments, all of which it may be necessary to use, one at a time, one at another, in achieving the triumph of those causes, and whenever the usefulness of any one has been exhausted, it is to be thrown aside. If such a man is wise, he will gladly do the thing that is next, when the time and the need come together, without asking what the future holds for him. Let the half-god play his part well and manfully, and then be content to draw aside when the god appears. Nor should he feel vain regrets that to another it is given to render greater services and reap a greater reward. Let it be enough for him that he too has served, 
and that by doing well he has prepared the way for the other man who can do better. End of chapter 3